Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. Today we will talk about Ukrainian history and why it can be interesting for the world. Our guest is Serhii Plohii, a famous Ukrainian historian, director of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. Plohii is a award-winning author of numerous books about Ukrainian and global history, in particular The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, Chernobyl, The History of a Nuclear Catastrophe, Yalta, The Price of Peace, Lost Kingdom, The Quest for Empire and the Making of the Russian Nation, and the most recent one, Nuclear Folly, a history of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Good morning, Serhii. Hello, it's it's good to be on your program, Vladimir. Thank you so much for joining us. So we are talking about, obviously, Ukrainian history, and you are one of the greatest specialists in Ukrainian history, also a person who wrote lots of books about Ukrainian and global history. So, uh, viewed from the global history, what are the light motifs of Ukrainian history? Can we find some, you know, uh, constant topics? For example, maybe fight against empires or Republican democratic political culture? What do you think? Well, this is an excellent question. Thank you, Volodymyr. And the question that I asked myself more than once in particular when I started to uh, write this general survey of Ukrainian history that appeared as the Gates of Europe. And uh, uh, the task was really how you put uh, together in conceptual terms the history of the country, of the region, of the people, of the territory that um, goes through not just centuries, but more than one millennium. And uh, the fight against the empires is certainly a very important part of Ukraine. Ukrainian history, certainly of the um, modern and, and parts of early modern period. But if you look earlier, what, what is today Ukraine is the center of another empire, which is the uh, empire of Kiev and Rus. So from that point of view, right away, either you exclude Kiev and Rus from the history of Ukraine or you include it and then the fight of the empire somehow becomes a more limited, limited concept. So at the end, I uh, uh, really relied on very very, very old approach to writing of history, putting uh, the elements of geography into the center of uh, my understanding of Ukrainian history. And uh, uh, geography meant uh, the location of Ukraine and the societies that lived on that territory on a number of uh, borderlands. It was the um, frontier between the steppe areas and the settled, uh, the, the, the wooded areas, which were settled areas that were the homeland of the uh, Slavic tribes. There was also a frontier between, a little bit later, between Eastern and um, Christianity and Western Christianity. Uh, so I, I, at the end, I decided that something that really would work for Ukrainian history in this laundry approach to it is looking at Ukraine as a, a quintessential uh, borderland and uh, going beyond the paradigms that existed before in terms of uh, Ukraine or Poland or Hungary as anti-morale against the East. But uh, on, on contrary, looking at this area as the meeting place of different peoples, civilizations, cultures, languages, which 
meeting they really create a very very unique society a very unique um, uh, quality which is known to us as Ukraine we are we are uh, um, really inherited all that richness of, of the region but that was that was my solution again I certainly uh, I'm very very sure that there are other wonderful ways of looking at Ukrainian history but that's that was that was my approach and and still continues to be today I think this is very interesting and the very concept borderland or big frontier is very interesting but compared to some other other cultures can can't we name for example Poland also a kind of a borderland between Eastern and Western Christianity or can we name Britain as a kind of a borderland between settled Europe and the Atlantic so can't we apply apply this approach to any society and if yes what is the specific trait of ukrainian history in this respect well um, again another another great question and the idea of the ukraine as a borderland first of all is not new one and uh, again some nuances are new Uh, but uh, the idea per se is not new and it wasn't uh, born in Kiev certainly uh, there is a history of uh, looking at different societies in that way but uh, few few really uh, countries and regions can be defined specifically in those terms that I just uh, characterized Ukraine and this is the borderland between the settled areas and the steppe areas which also turned out to be a borderland between Christianity and Islam and then the borderland between Eastern and Western Christianity which again has a long tradition so Ukraine from that point of view is not absolutely unique but there are features of Ukrainian uh, borderland uh, condition or the borderland history that are unique specifically for Ukraine and maybe to a different degree to other countries as well Tony Jad actually was writing about the Poles and and Poland uh, uh, really uh, taking pride of being this bulwark of Western Christianity. Uh, but this is true if you think about Poland as a Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, not about today's. Poland per se, and there is a lot of confusion there. It seems to me Tony Jad is also uh, fell for that confusion. Because if you look at, at, at those territories where the Poles define themselves in those terms, those would be the territories of today's Ukraine, which were of course included in Poland. So there is this Ukrainian mythology, or not just mythology, but also the real existence in the conditions of the borderland, which was claimed but not just by the Polish society, but by a number of other societies and states that uh, that controlled Ukraine. So this is one point. Another point in terms of, uh, again, uniqueness versus not uniqueness of Ukraine. If you think about, for example, uh, borderland between East and West uh, as, as, as cultural frontier, Christianity, again, uh, Belarus is very much part of, of, the same, of the same space as is Ukraine, but it lacks that uh, step component. As As a result, it, it lacks in its history the phenomenon that uh, really uh, became very important in Ukrainian history, and this is the, the phenomenon of Cossackdom. Again, you can say Cossacks are not unique. We have Ural Cossacks, and we have uh, Amur Cossacks, and so on and so forth. Yes, and I, I, I would certainly agree, I agree with that statement. But there is, again, specificity dealing with Ukraine. Ukraine is the only place where the Cossacks were able to build a statehood of their own. 
which was which had limited but international recognition. So that is that is the way how I understand u- uniqueness of of Ukraine and the way how to apply the uh, frontier or the borderland paradigm to the uh, to the history of Ukraine. There are it. it helps us to understand some unique features of Ukraine that it doesn't share maybe with other borderlands, either uh, either civilizational, cultural, linguistic, religious, and so on. It's very interesting. I think what you're doing, you're trying also to give certain, you know, bigger value to this idea of borderland, because we know, for example, in, in some anti-Ukrainian I would say maybe some text coming from Russia. There is this pejorative meaning, like Ukraine means Ukraine, and it's literally so. So Ukraine has to do something with this. The, the name of Ukraine means actually borderland, right? But this was this is a kind of a pejorative uh, usage of this word, whereas you, you are saying that it is good to be a borderland. It is a meeting place. It is interesting. That's what I, what are you saying? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm. I'm saying exactly that, and uh, uh, again, I, I'm saying that as a part of a bigger choir of people who who are talking about that, and uh, the, there is a really spike in the interest. In, in studying, in looking at, at the borderlands uh, in the last uh, maybe 20 or 30 years in particular. And the argument there is that uh, by studying the borderland, you understand much more than the borderland per se. You also that you understand much better the societies that are which have centers somewhere else, or the empires, or the states that have centers somewhere else. But in the borderlands, they meet the other. And it is in this contact, in this communication with other, that those societies also define themselves. So uh, if, if, you, if you take that approach, then the argument can be made that, for example, to better understand uh, Austria-Hungary, you really have to look at Galicia and how it defines itself in, the, in that borderland. And there is very interesting work written about the Austrian takeover of Galicia and the attempt of realization of the, um, this enlightening project of creating society, creating the state from the clean slate. Uh, th- there is an argument that you can probably understand better the, the Russian Empire, especially of the 18th century, if you see what is happening in um, Ukraine in particular, in, in terms of the uh, partitions of Poland, the, the liquidation of the Hetmanate, the formation of the policies about the integration of the Cossack officer class into the um, Russian uh, Russian nobility or relations between, between the Russian um, imperial authorities and uh, the Crimea, the annexation of the Crimea, the first one of uh, 1784. So again, uh, the, the, the argument is that by focusing on the, on the borderlands, you can you can study and understand much more than the borderlands. So the borderlands are cool. And in terms of uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine as, 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 as a periphery, as a border, yes, it's, it's, it's an argument that uh, is used till today in, in, in a little bit different form, uh, saying that, okay, Ukraine was never a state, right? So it's, it's uh, something that Putin was saying to Bush, apparently, that, okay, it never was a state. And it is almost reflected in its name. The trick is, again, that this is an old imperialist thinking and the world if you look today at the map of the world this is the more the world created out of states that were at some point borderlands between different empires 
the majority of the states, members of the UN, the majority of these um, bright spots that you can see on the map, on, on the globe today, are the former dependencies, the former colonies, the, the former borderlands. So Ukraine, from that point of view, is part of a uh, emergence of Ukraine as an independent state, is part of a bigger and larger process. The interest in borderlands is also related to that particular um, process. So I think that we, we just have to, to also rethink and reform formulate what we are proud of and what we are not proud of. Are we specifically have to be proud belonging or being at the center of the empire that conquered half of the world? That was certainly the, the, the reason to be very proud in the 19th century. I'm not sure this is the case in 21st. There is a confusion between concepts Ukraine, Rus and Russia. The Kiev, Kiev was a center of Rus, a medieval Uh, medieval state, or you call it a medieval empire. Uh, but then we know that there is a country called Russia, which uh, in its ideology pretends to have its roots also in Kiev. And in English-speaking world, we sometimes see the usage, we often see the usage of adjective Russian, which applies to this medieval reality and uh, calling this medieval reality, which has to do also with Ukraine-Belarus, Uh, a kind of a pre-form of the Russian state. So how do these concepts relate to each other, Ukraine, Rus, and Russia? Well, the the roots of of uh, today's Ukraine are, of course, in Rus, in, in particular in the state, uh, whether it's empire or big territorial polity in Eastern Europe, which is known as Kievan Rus. The Kievan Rus is not the term, of course, that was used by, uh, by people over there. This is a creation of the historians of the 19th century, imperial historians, by the way. But uh, the Rus, the principalities of Rus are the, the origins of uh, political system, of, of, of dynasty, of law, of language for uh, Ukraine, but not only for Ukraine, for Russia as well, for Belarus as well. And uh, there is this uh, debate about the heritage of the Kievan Rus, which uh, today is fought also uh, on, on the battle lines in, in, in places like Donbass, for example, who is the real Rus. And uh, uh, the Russians were there first in the, in the, in the 18th century and even earlier claiming, uh, claiming that exclusive rights on Kievan heritage on the basis, first of all, of uh, um, dynasty. Despite the fact that the, the so-called Rurikite dynasty dies out in Russia uh, at the end of the 16th century, Romanovs, who are not Rurikites, uh, come to power, but again, the line continues. And uh, this is related to the fact that, again, Russia emerges as an independent state uh, from out of the control of the Golden Horde in, um, in the late uh, 15th century. There are resources that put uh, at the at the princely court, at the metropolitan's court, and then a patriarchal court later into writing chronicles and to producing that kind of mythology. And uh, Ukrainians joined that uh, debate uh, relatively late in the 19th century with the rise of modern uh, Ukrainian national movement and the discussion uh, between uh, Pogodin, Mikhail Pogodin, one of the leading Russian historians of the 19th century, and uh, Mikhail Maximovich, the, the president, uh, rector at that time of newly formed Kiev University is taking place in the mid-19th century, where the discussion is whether the real ancestors 
of uh, Ukrainians and, and, and Russians. Where do they live? They called it Little Russians and, and, and Great Russians at that point. And Pogodin comes up with the theory that, well, the real Russians who lived in Kiev during the times of St. Volodymyr, that they out-migrated to Russia. And the Kiev and Ukraine was populated by other groups, other tribes coming from the Carpathians. So the debate is, is, is going on and go, uh, goes for a long period of time. The uh, Ukrainian nation builders of the 19th century decided actually to put an end uh, to that confusion, at least on the level of uh, terminology. So the term Ukraine was, was produced as the term to define this new national project that would include contemporary uh, Ukrainian territories defined mostly by language and culture at that time. And uh, then the, the uh, one problem was solved, but another problem emerged of how you, how you assure this continuity between the uh, Rus of, of Kievan times and Ukraine of the 19th and 20th century. And the greatest Ukrainian historian of, that, uh, of the 20th century, Mikhailo Ruszewski, wrote a 10-volume history of Ukraine. Uh, the title of the history was the history of Ukraine. Rus connecting these two, uh, two terms and these two periods uh, in, in Ukrainian history together. So again, there is certainly a, a little bit of a confusion is still out there, uh, given that the in English in particular, the, the perception of, of, of the history of the region was formed through the works, uh, by reading works of uh, Russian historians, Russian emigre historians. So the West was looking at that entire region through the eyes of Russia. It is changing. It is changing uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union. So now it's really in, in the academic works, in particular, you really can't uh, see references to Kiev and Russia in, in the text written in the 70s or 80s. There would be still there. Kiev and Rus is now the accepted term, and. Uh, there is a, a major contribution that was made to that change of perception, to that shift by uh, the founders of the Ukrainian Research Institute uh, at Harvard University, in particular Ihor Shevchenko and Omelian Pritsak, who really um, created the, the study of Kiev and Rus as the, as the discipline in the in the United States of America that didn't exist before. And from the very beginning, from the very foundations, that was not a Russo, in, in a sense, Russian-centric understanding of Kiev and Rus. And that's, that's how the field continues till today. Coming to today's reality, to contemporary world, uh, let's talk about the 20th century. 20th century, obviously very difficult for, for many nations, including Ukraine. So what was similar... In which way Ukraine's history was similar to its neighbors, for example, in the 20th century, and in which, uh, in which way it was different and unique? Well, uh, I already mentioned that Ukraine and Ukrainian independence in particular uh, are part of a broader processes, world processes. Uh, and in the 20th century, I believe that uh, the, the most important process is the process of the disintegration of the empires and the creation of nation-states. Again, the, the, there are different ideologies associated with that, but it's defeat of the of the old empire and the rise of the new nation-state or the states that are trying to be nation-states and try to nationalize. And so from that point of view, 
Ukraine is part of that of, the, of that broader process. There were five attempts during the 20th century for, initiated by different political forces in Ukraine to declare independence. The fifth and the last attempt succeeded. But that, that uh, means that Ukraine uh, was persistently knocking on the same door, and, and that is the door of nation-state. Now, it was knocking on that door longer than others, and that's where the probably part of Ukrainian uniqueness lies, in a sense that that door was just opening but not wide enough, then it would close again, then it would be just nailed down and not not, not open at all. So this uh, long struggle for, for Ukrainian independence is probably the uniqueness of Ukraine in comparison to our neighbors, uh, including Western neighbors who were part of the Russian Empire or partially were part of the Russian Empire, like Poland, for example, or uh, Baltic states. It's it's not that um, their, the, their history of the 20th century was devoid of any drama and tragedy, but certainly they experienced more in terms of the independent existence or auton- autonomous existence of their states than, than did Ukraine. So that is where the commonalities and where the uh, differences come to the fore. Another issue which I want really to point to in terms of uniqueness of Ukraine, let's say, uh, to Lithuanians and their, their road to independence, or the majority, I would say, majority of the countries in the in, in former colonial spheres, in countries that were parts of, of the empires. Very few uh, former colonies or peripheries that emerged as independent states shared with their masters, imperial masters, uh, common historical mythology, uh, elements of culture, and elements of language, as has been the case uh, with regard to Ukraine and Russia. Uh, we already talked about the Kievan origins of Ukraine, but also Kievan origins of uh, Russian self-identification, culture, identity, and so on and so forth. Uh, you can add to that um, uh, elements of the uh, existence of common uh, high culture in the 17th and 18th century, uh, common uh, to a degree that uh, there was there existed Church Slavonic, to a degree that many of the Russian imperial ideas, key imperial ideas, cultural ideas, were formulated by the alumni of Kiev Academy or rectors and professors of Kiev Academy like uh, um, Fevan Prokopovich. Uh, so there was a lot, a lot of uh, commonality with the, with the empire and the imperial nation that once the modern national nation project emerged on the horizon that became a quite serious impediment and if not an obstacle to the development of uh, independent Ukrainian project. And this issue of uh, really separation or or complete self-identification both by Russia and Ukraine continues till today and this is this is a very important component also of the ongoing war in eastern Ukraine today. If we talk about another war, the World War II, which is a you know a major event, tragic event in the twentieth uh, century, how can we approach the Ukrainian role and Ukrainian place in it? Uh, because on the one hand, we can talk about you know victimhood. Ukraine was a victim of uh, occupation from the Soviet Union, from the Nazi Germany, and Ukraine lost, I think, about one quarter of of its population. On the other hand, there is this image. 
that Ukrainians were collaborators with Nazi regime, and it is, uh, you know, used and abused by Kremlin propaganda today, which identifies Ukrainians and fascists. Uh, how can we have a critical approach to this problem? Ukraine uh, was not mostly was not an independent player in the World War II. Uh, during the interwar period, Ukraine was the largest uh, ethnic ethno-national group in Europe. They didn't have a state of its own. So the closest parallel would be to Kurds today being divided between different states. Ukraine uh, during the Second World War didn't really have its any form of self-rule. Uh, there was a short-lived attempt uh, to uh, declare the, the, the creation of independent Ukrainian states stayed by the members of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, which was crashed right away. And that was, uh, that was the, the, the maximum of uh, um, the, the kind of existence, state existence or autonomous existence of any unit associated with any ideology in Ukraine during the Second World War. And this is a striking difference compared to what we see during the World War One. And then the revolutionary developments and the fall of the empires that follow World War I in Eastern Europe, where there are a multiplicity of Ukrainian governments. Those governments try to conduct their own foreign policy. They are recognized by international entities, by, by other countries. Again, they're, they're not very successful. They don't last for too long. Some of them are dependencies like the Hetmanate, But the, the variety of states, the, the variety of, of the forms of self-organization and self-government during the World War I and after World War I comes in a striking, in, in, in a striking difference from what is happening in World War II. So World, in World War II, Ukraine as an entity is, is hardly an actor. It becomes an actor uh, in uh, 1944-1945 and continues later in, into the early 1950s with the uh, creation of the Ukrainian insurgent army. But again, this is, this is an army without a state. So again, difference, difference between, uh, between uh, World War II and World War I is quite striking. What that really means is that uh, Ukrainians were um, part of different, of different armies fighting each other on the territory of Ukraine. Joining those armies meant associating some hopes also for Ukraine and for Ukrainian uh, autonomy or, or, or some form of existence. Uh, some of those some of those ideas were really not not uh, I, I would say realistic. Although those hopes, those expectations were not realistic. Um, the, one of the one of the examples would be the Ukrainians joining the uh, uh, division SS Galicia, following really into the footsteps of their forefathers during World War One, thinking that if we are joining those forces, we are getting training, and then there will be hope for Ukrainian uh, some form of Ukrainian independence or autonomy. It didn't it didn't work out that way. Uh, the Ukrainians who jo joined the Red Army and there were um, maybe missed taken now, but there were between, uh, I have to check my <laughs> gates of Europe, but it seems to me up to uh, uh, three million or three, three or five million, I, I'm, I'm not sure right now, but millions of, of uh, people in the, in the Red Army. Many of them joined voluntarily, others were mm, recruited. And for them, it was very obvious also that uh, with, all the, with all the tragedies of Holodomor, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic of, of uh, uh, 
the late 1930s was certainly preferable to the German rule, really colonial rule, over Ukraine in 1941, 1942, 1943. So uh, you, you can't say that joining the Red Army, they were not fighting for, for Ukraine or for their understanding of Ukraine. And again, the, the Ukrainian writers like Dovzhenko and others certainly articulated that very well. So when I think about, about Ukraine, it's really in World War II, for me, it's mostly a battleground. It's a battleground between different forces, ideologically, politically, and otherwise, in which Ukrainians are participants, but their ideas, their vision of the future of the country is really marginal in all of that story. But it doesn't exist at all. So other fighting powers know about these expectations of the Ukrainians. So they're trying to use them, including use for political reasons, playing the so-called Ukraine card. Stalin certainly does that quite effectively in, in, in Yalta in February of 1945, claiming on behalf of Ukrainians what is today Western Ukraine, including Lviv, and uh, uh, also uh, trying to advance its uh, the, the Soviet uh, international standing by advocating for the uh, seat uh, and the assembly of the United Nations Assembly for Ukraine. So this is a classic example of playing Ukrainian card. Hitler was trying to do the the same in uh, 1938 and then late 1939, trying to use the Ukrainian nationalist uh, possible revolt of possible the Ukrainian nationalists to start uh, the um, hybrid war, what we call today, in, in the Polish state and then use it as a pretext to, to attack Poland. So there, is, there are a lot of attempts to use that Ukrainian card and very limited, very limited success on the part of uh, Ukrainians really to advance their agendas by joining forces, non-Ukrainian armies and non-Ukrainian forces. When we talk about the history of the Soviet Union, can we say that Ukraine was a key factor for for the construction of the Soviet Union in its in its form as a federal, you know, kind of a federal empire? We can say, and that with, without Ukrainian, uh, you know, movement, national movement of the 19th century and then of the its independence in the 20th century, Soviet Union would be probably different and and would be probably similar, more similar to the Russian Empire of the 19th century. And can we say that Ukraine was a key factor for the collapse of the Soviet Union as well? Yes, we can say yes on both counts, the formation of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Ukrainian story is central for both uh, developments. Through the uh, 19th century, the main headache for the Russian imperial authorities were Poland. So the Poles uh, developed uh, the sense of modern national identity before anyone else, including Russians in empire, were able to do that. We have two uprisings, Polish uprisings in the 19th century, and we see Poland certainly living the Russian empire first among its territories uh, in the course of uh, World War one and then immediately after that. But once Poland was gone, the main problem, the main headache for the uh, any authority in the center of the former Russian Empire and the center, at least in terms of the capital, moves from St. Petersburg to Moscow. So the major headache became Ukraine. And uh, the uh, Ukraine and Georgia were at the center of these debates in uh, 1921, 1922 about the formation of the Soviet Union. 
We see the uh, vision uh, of Joseph Stalin that really recreating a form of the Russian Empire under the name of Russian Federation and including other republics as autonomous units. And um, Lenin, who is who is in, uh, at that time in fight with, with Stalin for control over the party, really uh, uses the opposition that comes from, from Ukraine. It is articulated by the communists. Uh, the, some of those communists have really no Ukrainian background, like uh, Rakovsky and others. So Ukrainians and the Georgians are the two troublemakers. So the more things change, <laughs> um, the, the less the less actual change occurs. So we, we see again, the more they uh, remain the same. So we see again um, Ukraine and, and Georgia today in the forefront of this challenge to the uh, Russian attempt to recreate, re-establish Moscow's control over the post-Soviet space. So Ukraine and Georgia would be would be the key factors that uh, really are responsible for uh, the creation of the union structure of the Soviet Union and creation of the Soviet Union rather than Russian Federation. Of course, uh, Stalin's attempts after that were to uh, really uh, turn the union structure into formality and really uh, stick to the vision of this highly centralized state, which he successfully successfully implemented with the, some cultural rights uh, given given to the republics and given to, to, to the national republic. So um, being a Georgian himself, uh, Stalin believed in, in nations, believed in, in the power of uh, nationalism per se, but what, what he was prepared to believe to the republics were the, the elements of culture and even those were, of course, uh, controlled and uh, oppressions were there more than many, maybe anywhere else. But that autonomy that was there with culture, we can't find it in terms of the industrial development, in terms of the building of the armed forces, uh, so the, or, or f- for that matter, the foreign policy. So despite all, all t- problems and troubles that the Ukrainian culture went through in the, during the Soviet times, the, the level of autonomy was there more than in other spheres of, of Soviet life, economic, political, and otherwise. So that is to address your question about the formation of the Soviet Union. In terms of the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukrainians vote in December of 1991. They go to the voting stations to answer the question whether they wanted their country to be independent whether they supported the decision of the Ukrainian parliament uh, from uh, August 24th, 1991, to declare Ukraine independent. Uh, There is no question about do we want the continuation of the Soviet Union or not. There is no question about do we want Uzbekistan to (laughs) to go independent? What do you think about Belarus? The only question, there is one question, the question is about Ukraine. But once more than 90% of Ukrainians answer in in affirmative to that question, yes, we want our country to be independent, the Soviet Union falls apart within the next week. The question is why? Neither neither Gorbachev nor uh, Yeltsin really imagined or envisioned the Soviet Union without Ukraine. Uh, and Yeltsin's response to, to that question to uh, President uh, George H.W. Bush m- was quite simple. Without Ukraine, Russia would be outvoted and outnumbered by the Muslim republics. 
Uh, so in, in this answer, and it, it, it is uh, registered twice in the, in the American documents that I worked with, uh, the, the emphasis is on this, on those cultural differences. And it's difficult for me to say whether, uh, really Yeltsin believed in that or he thought that he was using the language that Bush would understand. Uh, but the point is that uh, the, this cultural differences, not that they were not existent, but that was all, only part of the story. Another important, important part of the story was that Russia figured out, especially in the conditions of the economic crisis of 1991, that it didn't have resources to keep the empire going in terms of the subsidies to the regions, to the republics, and so on and so forth. Yeltsin was eager to, to keep the proceeds from Russian oil and gas to, to Russia, first and foremost. And the idea was that keeping the empire going on its own without the support of Ukraine, which happened to be the second largest after Russia, economy in the Soviet Union, the, the second largest republic in terms of the population, plus geopolitical, geostrategic position of the country. The um, idea was that the, the model has to be changed. And the model that Yeltsin believed in was the model of the Commonwealth of Independent States as a new form of confederation. Ukraine had a very different view of what, what the Commonwealth was supposed to be. Uh, Kravchuk famously, the, the first president of Ukraine famously said that it is about the civilized divorce, not about remarriage. And eventually it's Ukrainian position that, that won and, and Russia lost in terms of uh, the, the future of the Commonwealth as, as a new federation or confederation, sorry, led by Russia. Uh, and uh, um, Russia doesn't want, at least the, the current leadership doesn't want to admit that uh, that defeat. Again, uh, as it was back in 1922, Ukraine and Georgia are at the, at the forefront, at the center of this uh, debate about the future of the post-Soviet space. Uh, that in 22, it was the future of the post, post-Russian, post-imperial space. My last question directs to Ukrainian independence. The th 30 years from the Declaration of Independence, what are the key trends in Ukraine's newest history? How can we explain, for example, Ukraine's repeating uprisings, the so-called Maidans, and what are the reasons for Russia's aggression against Ukraine? Well, uh, the reason for Russian aggression is on two levels. Uh, one of them is that given the importance of Ukraine for the formation of the Soviet Union, disintegration of the Soviet Union, any attempts of creating any sort of new union on the, on the territory of the former Soviet, uh, former USSR, whether it would be called Eurasian or, or any other name for that, but Russia centered into and dominated international organization. Those attempts historically have no chance without Ukraine being part of it. So from that point of view, involvement of Ukraine in the future Russia-led union in Eurasia is essential for Russia's global vision of itself in the world in general, but also its role in the region. And um, once Ukraine refused to join that, that union, the task became to stop Ukraine actually from drifting in the direction of Europe. So that is uh, this uh, historical and geostrategical uh, reasons for this very aggressive behavior of Russia, which is also very, very uh, beneficial on the one hand uh, uh, for the current Russian regime in terms of the internal politics in Russia, but it's very damaging 
in terms of the development of the Russian economy, society, standing of Russia in the world, and so on and so forth. And the second, uh, the second uh, reason is uh, the one that I also mentioned before. It is related to this process of the formation of nation and national identities and national territories in the post-imperial spaces. The question of where Russia ends is still an open question for, for many in Russia, including the elites where the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine includes uh, our part of Russia or not, it's, it's an open question. The formation of the Ukrainian national identity uh, got a major boost in the last uh, few years, but it is far from being complete. And uh, those those issues of the Russian self-identification and Ukrainian self-identification, Belarusian as well, is something that is debated not only by historians, literary scholars, or philosophers. It is debated with arms in hand, places like uh, Donbass today. And it is at stake, certainly, when you look at uh, what is happening today in Belarus and Belarus relations with Europe and and Russia. So um, both, uh, both issues of the self-identification for um, Russia and Russians and a new Russian political entity, and its vision of its global role depend on Ukraine. And uh, uh, that is that is why Ukraine uh, found itself in that situation. This is from the perspective of Russia. From the perspective of Ukraine, the, the process of the uh, formation of a uh, nation is far from over. And that suggests uh, weaknesses, weaknesses that certainly attract uh, aggressors. In this, in this particular case, Russia. Ukraine came into existence as independent state in 1991 as the result of two types of mobilization. The first uh, was parallel or similar to the mobilization in the Baltic states, in Eastern Europe, and uh, that, uh, that mobilization was embodied really in the activities of Ruch the movement for independence of Ukraine in the late 1980s. So it was coming from below, and it was really cultural and national in its foundations. And then there was another type of mobilization that came with the workers' strikes, where the, the social issues, the social component were dominant, not national, not cultural ones, or the issues of independence per se. And that is the story of the mobilization of Kharkiv. This is the story of the uh, strikes in Donbass, where the Donbass miners are the fo- emerge as the force that support Ukrainian independence as the way to assure to get a friendlier government to assure the support for the for the industry that actually was dying already at that time in sixties and seventies, not being financially viable anymore. And uh, that uh, these two types of mobilization really come out of different experiences of, of Ukrainian regions, which are, um, the, which experiences are deeply rooted into history. Part of that history we discussed today: the division between empires, Russian Empire and and Habsburg Empire, and we can add certainly the Ottoman Empire in the south as well. So this regionalism is an important part of Ukrainian story and Ukrainian cultural DNA as it exists today. And uh, from that point of view, there are parallels with the American, uh, early American history, where you see colonies, 
colonies which are united by this idea to stay away from uh, from Britain, but are divided also by different religious uh, loyalties and affiliations. And in Ukraine, we have instead of colonist regions that are united by the idea of independent Ukraine, but are also divided by the by different historical experiences. And uh, when you have a configuration like that, the, the only way forward is, is uh, creation of a viable democracy and, and platform in which the commonalities and differences can be discussed. Democracy is the only way for the forward for the existence of those of, of such formations. And Ukraine, Ukraine was born democratic and Ukraine continues to be democratic e- even after this really trial with war and, and, and Russian aggression in the last 10 years. Uh, democracy is never easy, especially in the countries that have little, if any, tradition of democratic development. And uh, Ukrainians uh, are not afraid to say that they disagree with this government or that government. So as a result, you get protests that, that, that start and go for a long period of time, really street festivals, <laughs> festivals of culture, without violence, being very peaceful, and then turning violent already in the last 10 years as part of also not just processes, internal Ukrainian processes, but also uh, foreign foreign uh, interference. So I'm very positive in terms of the democratic development of Ukraine, especially in the long run. But in the short run, of course, we have, we have a lot, a lot of challenges, both inside of the country and outside. Thank you very much. It was a fantastic interview, fantastic uh, conversation. Uh, our guest today was Serhii Plohi, famous Ukrainian historian, director at the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. So we are talking across the ocean. I'm in Kiev and Serhii is uh, uh, at Harvard University. Read his books, especially The Gates of Europe, History of Ukraine, but also other magnificent books. Uh, which basically cover many, many centuries of, of history of Eastern Europe and not only. Thank you so much, Serhii. Thank you, Vladimir. It was a pleasure. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I am editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. Subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Google Podcast, or Apple. Follow us on social networks, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and stay with us.